Hello and welcome to the Obehave Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Middleton, also known as the Behaviorist. And today we have the inappropriate opossum. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hello, everybody. I am Inappropriate Opossum. I am the author of the Inappropriate Behavior blog, which can be found at www.inappropriate-behavior.com. Or if you don't feel like typing all of that, it can also be found at www.inapbx.com. Awesome. And uh, today we're talking about taskless item E2 and E6, if I remember correctly. Yes. And I, of course, silly me, had it all ready to go, but forgot to pull up the, type, the names for it. So responsibilities as a professional and responsibility in public statements. Um, <clears throat> so this is going to be a fun ball of wax, especially since <laughs> uh, this season of podcast has been pretty much back to back episodes talking about behavior analysis in a little bit more of a critical light, I guess you could say. Um, to do a little rehashing, um, the first episode of the season uh, came on as um, Todd Ward talking about um, leaving or working outside of behavior analysis, sorry, working outside of autism and behavior analysis. Then Ryan O and I talked about change in behavior analysis, and we talked about some critical stuff there. Um, We then followed it up with a a fantastic podcast about cults and contingencies. And um, it's going to be a little bit fun because now we get to see some of some, some examination of the field and considering what sort of responses we're having um, two demands and, and challenges for change. So, uh, one thing I will say, um, opossum, I guess that's what I'll call you. <laughs> <That works. laughs> uh, one thing I will say opossum is, um, I love reading your blog. Thank you. And part of the reason I love reading your blog is because I regularly have a anger slash denial response when I'm reading it. And then I have to take a step back and self-examine and go, is it, are you being angry or defensive because you've done this or because you're feeling attacked or stuff like that? And then I have to examine and go, wait, hold on a second. These are pro- these emotional responses are appropriate, but you know, what's also appropriate accepting that you can be a part of the problem that inappropriate opossum is bringing up. I'm glad to hear that because that's, the responses I expected, but they're also the responses that I had when I first read criticism of ABA, especially criticism that harshly and that directly, which is why um, I have some some of those first ones on there where I do talk about like these arguments that you want to make, don't make them, but these responses that you're going to have, they're natural. Mm -hmm. And here's just my advice having gone through it that might help you kind of continue to do better because I know we mostly have good intentions across the field, but there are some serious issues there. So that segues perfectly, I think, into responsibility as a professional in, from your perspective, 
could you try to summarize what you consider the responsibility as a professional is? That's a very good question. I think we have a responsibility to our clients, especially because I am in the developmental disability field. So that is a lot of the focus of it is to use our science properly to make positive change. And I, I like to really emphasize the word science because science, I see it as a, a living organism that's constantly growing and changing when given novel information. And the minute you stop that, it ceases to become good science. And then I feel like we would then fail in our responsibility to our clients by not continuing to grow and especially in not continuing to listen to criticism from our clients. That's super important. And it's really not their responsibility to protect our feelings about it. That's our responsibility as adults and as scientists to look at being told, not only are you wrong, but you may have done something harmful. And instead of digging your heels in, learning from that and trying to make positive change. So, um, one thing that I've noticed in, in your posts, both on your blog and also your Facebook page, is that there's been a few times where you have referred to the all ABA hashtag. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like you to go into a little bit of uh, detail, if you're okay with that, explaining yeah. a little bit about like what your thought process is with that. And I understand where that thought process is going, but I want our listeners to understand. Um, sure. So is this in in response to not all ABA versus yes, all ABA? Mm -hmm. Okay. Sorry. Yes, all ABA. My bad. Yes. (laughs) That is one that I'm going to be honest, still gives me a little like ruffles, you know, because there are a lot of us out there who are very progressive um, and definitely trying to do better. And, you know, I always try to avoid that hashtag not all ABA because I know how unhelpful that is. But there are a lot of things we read about people's experiences or criticisms of ABA where we go, well, I don't do that. I've never done that. Um, But in having conversations with autistic people, I have found that that's not really what they mean by yes, all ABA. Um, By saying yes, all ABA, it's I guess the, the short version of it would be until there isn't a problem there's, it is all ABA because you have this crapshoot right now of, yes, there are some of us who are progressive, but you cannot throw a dart at any BCBA's name and ensure that their practice is going to be 100% harm-free. There's also some issues with how ABA is defined. And a lot of these arguments that the back and forth, even, even conversations that start off really productive between a, like a, practitioner and, and, you know, especially an autistic critic, it, it falls apart at semantics because what they're calling ABA, we're not necessarily calling ABA. And I do have a post where I try to explain that. And it was a little bit inspired by recent events, but also inspired by, if I can plug somebody else, a conversation with not another autistic advocate, um, JJ Mudridge. I actually messaged them because I wanted to build my resource page. And I said, you know, I understand you, you're very critical of ABA for some very valid reasons. So if you, you know, want your name out of my mouth, I will not put it on my website, but I would really like to put your, your site on my website. And not only did they surprise me by giving me permission, but it sparked a really interesting conversation 
where like I described what I did and they were like, but that's not ABA. And of course it is. So when we, when we look at ABA, we're looking at the science of behavior, which of course is everywhere. You cannot escape contingencies. But when they are talking about behavior, they really are talking about a pretty specific set of practices that are very common, not necessarily universal. But I, I feel like we need to have that mutual understanding of what they are talking about when they say yes, all ABA, and try not to get caught up in the the extra knowledge that we have about behavioral science and just be able to engage with what they are referring to when they say that and then actively combat that. Um, and it, it sparked a really interesting conversation of, is what I'm doing ABA reform or ABA abolishment? I say it's ABA reform, but they were like, any autistic's gonna look at that and say that's abolishment. I do have a post on there where I do kind of go into that. I, I remember reading that, it was an excellent yes. one. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the things I would like to add, if you don't mind, um, I actually do a presentation on trauma-informed care that I do for, for companies. Um, I've, asked, I've been asked multiple times to present both at a, a conference, a conference and, and two companies on this topic. Uh, because of my position as an autistic who is also a BCBA, um, and there's a reference that I make in that to an article. Um, the article is Willinkfield uh, and McCarthy and is published in the Kennedy Institute of Ethics Journal. Um, the DOI number is uh, 10.1353-KEN. Sorry, backslash KEN.2020.0000 for those who want to look it up. Uh, the title is Ethical Concerns with Behavior Analysis for Autism Spectrum Disorder, and disorder is in quotes. And so um, this is important, and I want to share this because this is an important part of that conversation too. So the quote at the end of the paper is, in this paper, we have argued that autistic children should not be treated with the parentheses, uh, sorry, with parentheses, the dominant species of, parentheses out, ABA, as such statement essentially val invalidates their autonomy and um, at least contingently, it does them direct harm and is unjust to one group of people. We have argued that the demand to help people does not make ABA obligatory. And so on balance, it is to be avoided. Wow. That is damning. Yes. And um, in my opinion, it is accurate because the dominant species, the one with the force compliance as the emphasis with the, we're going to use extinction by itself emphasis, the, the planned ignoring where we don't learn to differentiate between the behavior we're ignoring and the communication from the child. Mm -hmm. um, the sitting at a table for hours and hours and hours. Um, the, as soon as session starts day one, placing demands and we're not doing stimulus fading. We're not doing um, pairing in, in, in any true sense of the word. We're basically pairing ourselves with punishment, thus creating traumatic experiences. If that's the dominant species that they're talking about, which if you read the paper, it is, then we need to abolish that. 100%. Right. And, and so the, I don't use the hashtag yes, all ABA because I, I don't want to shut people off. 
But what I do say is when people ask me about my neurological neurotype status and being a practitioner ABA, I say, I am responsible as a practitioner, me, I'm responsible for the trauma that was done to kids in the 90s, 80s and 90s. And I was born in the 80s. I'm responsible. And you know why I'm responsible? Because I'm a member of this community, because I'm a professional. And so me as a professional takes that responsibility when I add the letters BCBA behind my name. Yeah, that's kind of where I've, the more I've dug into this issue and the more I've kind of written about it, the more, yeah, I, I agree. And also if you dig deep, deep into the roots, there, there's a lot of problematic stuff that is forming the foundation of ABA. So then you have the question of, can you remove some of those components and still have a stable foundation or is the whole thing come crashing down? And then when you build it up again, do you have something that can even be called ABA? And I don't have an answer to that. I've, I've written a lot about it because it, it's a question that fascinates me. And it may I, again be getting into semantics. Yeah. I'm going to, I hope that this offers some insight for some people. Um, And I hope it offers insight for you. But one of my arguments that I make, especially with ABA in application towards developmental delays, which includes autism spectrum disorder. um, And I'm very careful to separate ASD and autism, the neurotype, because our Mm -hmm. understanding is that those, those are not the same thing. Although you can be, uh, you cannot be ASD without having the autism neurotype. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's my argument. But I think there's an epistemological error that was the foundation of the treatment of autism services and the other dark aspects of the past of behavior analysis, including conversion therapy, which thankfully is no longer sanctioned, but unfortunately is still legal. Mm -hmm. So the epistemological error is the assumption that these are learned behaviors. Yep. And the answer is yes and no, because like the yes, yes, a learned behavior is a dog learns how to bark and a dog learns how to howl, but it's also part of the dog's nature to bark and howl. So it can learn how to bark and howl in different ways, right? Same thing goes for a human. So a human, we have um, certain behaviors that that we are capable of learning. And some of them are informed mostly by our environment, but almost everything is informed by also our genetic characteristics. And so when it comes to um, one's sexuality or when it comes to one's neurotype, certainly there are learned behaviors that are related to that. And those learned behaviors can be cultural in addition to um, in addition to consequence-based, but at the foundation of it, the core of it is that those things are also in the person's nature. And so it's not our responsibility to try to stop somebody from being what, who, and what they are. And so when I hear someone say cure autism, I say, nope, stop, we're done. We're not curing autism, we're teaching skills. And the biggest problem I see within behavior analysis is a massive drift, massive drift away from our foundation, because at the end of the day, the only time that we should care about DSM-5 
uh, diagnoses criteria is for two reasons. One, to be able to provide the funding source to support, to, to help the individual. Two, to give us a general scattershot outline of what the topographical behaviors may look like. So that way we can start speeding up the treatment process, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the medical model of DSM is in itself problematic because there's a lot of characteristics in the DSM diagnosis that are ableist, um, cultural, where the culture, our culture needs to shift and change in, in, in the, how we treat people who are different. And yes, we've made massive progress from the turn of the 20th century, where instead of individuals who present as unusual or different are not worst case scenario, um, shoved into a room and kept there for days at a time with strapped no, to a bed, strapped to a bed mm -hmm. with little food and, or, and being treated poorly and best case. And I know I'm saying this best case, but best case scenario, parents throwing them down a well. Yep. I mean, that's, that's, arguable. that's awful to, that's <laughs> yes. awful to say. It's really awful to say, but like, if I had a choice, um, I would rather, I would rather die than be treated like that. Absolutely. So, and you, you say turn of 20th century, but that was still going on in the late 20th century. I, mm -hmm. I was making a just scatterbrain of a post yesterday. It will be edited, but it, I, it was, it has, it's had like three different main topics at this point because I was digging into Lovas. And it was really originally just meant to look at the 1987 paper that, you know, seemed to spark everything, but it just sent me down this rabbit hole of the verbal behavior around disabled people that started it all. I mean, he's, he's still hailed as like the father of ABA in a lot of places, um, and there, there was an interview I found from 1974 that was just so striking because he really thought he was helping. Like he describes himself as caring about these kids the way he would care about his own kids. Um, but there's this just deeply ingrained ableism I mean, he literally, this is where that, that infamous quote came from, where he basically says autistic kids aren't human, that you have to build a person from there. So it's like, he's describing his intentions as good and coming from a positive place, but it's such a problematic basis. And it's extreme because from our perspective, we've come really far from there. We don't talk about people like that. It is not okay yeah. to say that. But I feel like those attitudes haven't actually progressed quite as much as people like to think. Well, and that's part of why I bring up turn of the 20th century, because I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought it up because my next thought was going to be we think that we've made a lot of progress, but we haven't. We, we really haven't. We've just kind of changed the words. And again, like it comes down to semantics and what arguments are we facing? Like, yes, stupid and imbecile are no longer clinical terms. But calling, calling somebody who has previously called it, quote, imbecile, now just somebody with a cognitive disability, has done nothing to change the attitude towards people like that. Um, and it comes off, I mean, sure, all of us have had that 
same conversation with a relative or a random person. What do you do for a living? Oh, I work with autistic people. Oh, you must be so patient. Or, oh, wow, I could never do that. Uh Why? (laughs) I like to to shock people with that by saying, well, I'm an autistic kid. I like that. And they they go, they go, what? Like, you don't look like you're autistic. You don't look autistic. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, and I, I, I've, I've learned to bite my tongue and, and not, um, snap back because that 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 just disables the opportunity for t- for conversation um yeah. but what i do is is i talk about neurotype versus asd and i show my little venn diagram and i talk about how like really i'm just a scientific teacher and really there's there's nothing like there's nothing wrong with the individual like you shouldn't feel sorry for them you should just include them mm-hmm. accept them for who they are that's it. And really that's what I wanted as a kid. And yes, I know I presented as big air quotes here, people high functioning autistic or Asperger's (laughs) syndrome, not Asperger's because Hans Asperger pronounced his name as Asperger. Thank you. You know, (laughs) there you go. But, but, you know, I do like some Asperger's every once in a while. Num, 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 num. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, a little bit of inappropriate behavior there. (laughs) Yes. I will not hiss at that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I will say that a, a, um, a burger with some Boston butt in it is just mm, so, so good. Oh. It's, a, it's better when it's from Boston. I feel like a little salty. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no, that there's actually a cut of pork called the Boston, Boston butt. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, no, I did. I'm a, I'm a vegetarian and I'm not <laughs> oh, from there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't apologize. <laughs> my, um, my, my um, step-grandfather would make uh, homemade smoked sausage and, and his preferred cut was that. So that's fantastic. That, that's... I love everything about that, even <laughs> as a vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So at, at any rate, the, the, the point being that like, while I presented those, those things, like I've still had people look at me with pity mm-hmm. and I'm just like, I'm me. Like, so like the same thing for the kids that, that we work with, it's, Every, uh, when I, the, I, so I identify, I learned about my, um, my misdiagnosis when I was an adult, because I was a special ed teacher working with autistic kids. And, um, I, when I was going through teacher education, they were talking about all the definitions of ASD and it, there was really no solid training that was provided. And there was like, it was like, oh yeah, check out Temple Grennan's work and the, and and that sort that's of stuff. Right. Yeah, like that. That's about what it was. And then I start working with kids who have the ASD diagnoses, and I'm like, this was me as a kid. Like, yeah, yeah, th- <laughs> this is unique to them. But like, okay, so one of my favorite jokes I like to tell about autism is, and this is a true story. When I first heard the term "doing lines" as a kid. One, I was really sheltered because uh, as a kid, so th- th- that was a part of the issue. But someone's like, yeah, he was doing lines. And I'm like, I do those. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I line up my toys. Oh, I love lining up my cars. <laughs> and <laughs> so now, like, I- I- I've been wanting to do a meme that's like autistic doing lines. Uh, sorry, neurotypical doing lines. Uh 
autistic doing lines and, and comparing the two. And, please, but, please do that. <laughs> I'm not because there's going to be a lot of people who get angry and misunderstand Aww. me. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, <laughs> but, I'm inappropriate. So if you send it to me, I'll do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but, but the, but the point being like, there's got to be a little bit of humor in it, but there's also kind of a, a matter of pointing out that like, we have to change our attitudes. And part of our attitudes is stop judging the individual based off of their neurotype slash disorder mm -hmm. and start just accepting them because the appropriate response if someone was to, uh, diagnosed with uh, pervasive depressive disorder, I think that's the correct name for it. I always mess it up. I'm so sorry. Or basically clinical depression mm -hmm. is not to, oh, I feel so sorry for you. It's it's okay. Well, then I'm just going to accept you for who you are. Right. But even I would say that our culture hasn't even gotten there yet because you still hear, oh, just get some fresh air or cheer up. Yeah. Like, cheer up. That's great advice. Thanks. It's all in your mindset. <laughs> yeah. Literally, that's where my brain is. And that's where the chemicals are at working. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but there, there's because that comes also too with prioritizing goals, because I even feel like very progressive BCBAs who understand all of this still kind of get lost in that, in, in creating goals and looking at what's best for the person. And this is without, I mean, as you demonstrated, we do not have a good understanding of what autism is. All the diagnostic criteria is purely behavioral. There are no biological markers, um, not that there necessarily needs to be, but it's a lot of assumptions and then pathologizing those things without real thought as to why, like, why is it a bad thing that this person is flapping their hands? And well, it's the, the one that it makes comes other up, people nervous. And exactly. They, like, <laughs> right. Okay. So you don't flap your hands when you get excited. I mean, I definitely do, but I, I'm not autistic, but I'm neurodivergent. And, and that's <laughs> the other thing I think is interesting is the amount of overlap between other neurodivergences and ASD. But for some reason, when an autistic person does it, it's like, different yeah um i've also found that people grossly overestimate how distractible children are mm -hmm. especially kids who have been in special ed classes mm -hmm. um i've been told you know i can't go in there and observe in that classroom because i'll be a big distraction and like there is a kid singing in the corner pretty sure not going to be interested in me you know that they i have to wonder are they really concerned about the kids or does it just make them uncomfortable mm -hmm. and any any teacher or anybody who's worked with non-general education kids well we all work in environments that other people would find intolerable uh my, my best friend was a special ed teacher working in emotional behavior disorders for a decade and she told this hilarious story where she was in a training and they're watching a video like footage from a classroom and the guy teaching paused it and went, that is the difference between special ed teachers and gen ed teachers is not one of you react to the screen. And the entire class went scream. What scream? There was a scream. He went back and played. Apparently in the middle of this video was this blood curdling scream and not one of them heard it because <laughs> it's just, it's part of their environment. Um, or we put a lot of pressure on the kids to conform to school, but not a lot of pressure on schools to conform to them. Yep. Um, I've had a lot of 
well, they need to sit in their seat, you know, for an hour because that's what they expect from, you know, in a classroom. Like, you can't, though, like, can you give him a circle and let him walk around his desk in the back of the class? I can't fathom how that would distract anybody. Like, well, like initially <laughs> it might, but the thing is, is that, like, if you teach concepts of acceptance and understanding to kids, they understand them pretty quick. And uh, uh, my favorite story, I've told this before, I'll tell it again, is um, I had two students, one, uh, both autistic, uh, one presented differently than the other. They actually knew each other for a while. And as one of them was getting, uh, well, as they were both getting older, one of them became a little bit more socially aware and became a little bit embarrassed about his friends flapping Mm -hmm. and and vocal stimming. Um, And he started bullying his peer in my classroom. And, and so I pulled him aside and I'm going to call, um, I'm going to call the peer who was doing the stimming that, um, I'm going to call him John and I'm going to call the other one, Paul. Okay. So I pull Paul aside and I say, Hey, Paul, do you ever get excited? Yeah. Do you ever get embarrassed? Yeah. Do you ever get frustrated? Yeah. I'm like, what do you do when you're feeling those? He goes, these different things. And we just talked about it for a minute and I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, so sometimes John does the same thing. Right. And John's different than you. Right. He's like, yeah. I'm like, okay. So when he does that, it's cool, man. It's just him being him. You just accept him for who he is. And you know, you're, you're, you're still his friend, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. We got this. All right. Two weeks later, I'm in the hallway monitoring the halls of middle school. So, you know, and (laughs) I love middle school kids. They're the best. (laughs) It's so much fun. It doesn't matter where, what, where they fall on uh, when it comes to neurotype. They're all so spastic and wonderful. (laughs) Fantastic in between of like awkward puppies and adults and oh god so much (laughs) sorry go ahead (laughs) so um i'm hearing i overhear paul telling his neurotypical peers that when john does that it's just him being excited or those sorts of things and it's like don't worry about it he's just he's still him that's the best and, and that. like that year, all those kids and I, I knew some of them because some of them circled around my classroom, my lunch, uh, my number one intervention that had the most effect as a special ed teacher is I had an open classroom for lunchtime where I had special permission for kids to be able to come in and eat lunch in there. So that way they could get out of the overwhelming noise level that is the lunchroom. Um, and I didn't limit it to the sped kids. In fact, I actually would look at, look for, um, general ed kids and invite them in to be participants and to help. Um, but more often, like the first year I had to do inviting after that, I didn't have to do any inviting at all. The kids would come in on their own and just be friends. And so I started seeing these kids that Paul had talked to with John starting to include John more. That's awesome. And just pulling him out of his shell. And like, whenever John would do his, you know, stimming, they, they, they just, they wouldn't bat an eye. It's just like, Hey, that's John. Cool. You're come play with us, man. And it it, it made all the difference in the world for this kid. Um, And it made all the difference for those kids too, because now they have a friend and it's not, Oh, I feel bad for him. It's, 
this is my friend. Why should I feel bad for my friend? I like my friend. Mm-hmm. So. But that's the difference. It's how you present it. It wasn't presented as this is different. It was this is just them, just like it's you. We've all got our things. It's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing. And when you don't present it as something that needs to be different, well, A, you get a lot of those accommodations being used by people that you didn't expect. Um, I consulted once in this fantastic classroom where I I had a learner in there who was on the spectrum, but um, was a gen ed class, but he did have some noise sensitivity and the teacher was amazing. And she said, well, I'm just going to have a whole bunch of headphones at the time the front of the class and first day of class she said hey if it gets loud in here for you just grab one of those headphones and so she just didn't she didn't make it like this is for him she didn't you know single anybody out but obviously they were there for him but yeah she said most of the kids use it a lot of times he he may not he does but there's typical kids in the class that use them just as much and because she presented as this is just how my classroom works nobody thinks about it that's, that's, we, we overthink kids, I think, a little bit. And yeah. also simultaneously underthink them. It's a very odd dichotomy. It but, is an odd one. Um, my, other, yeah. my, odd, my other favorite odd one as a SPED teacher was um, an, a, I prefer neurological mean, by the way, over neurotypical, but it's kind of more wordy. So well, I say yeah. neurological mean because there's, we think like that. that there's multiple neurotypes within the neurotypical. So like, it, it's kind of, it's ableist in a different direction to say neurotypical, but that's a common parlance. So whatever, but um, like a neurotypical or neurological mean kid will do something and the teacher will ignore it. And then the neurodiverse kid will do something and the teacher will be like, why did you do that? And it's just like, you just ignored that kid doing it. Why can't you ignore this kid doing it? Mm -hmm. Just let him be a freaking kid for Pete's sake. That's always striking when you're, when you're reading, I'm reading, journal articles with such a new set of eyes and I'm gonna admit I was not great about reading articles past grad school professor if you're listening I'm sorry please don't hate me but um the pathological way they describe otherwise typical reactions to things is like target behaviors including you know hitting would occur when you know escape extinction was used like well yeah if someone made me continue doing something that I said I didn't want to do yeah, I'd probably start pushing people too. Why yeah. is it okay when I do it? Why do we hold disabled people to a different standard? And it's it's that th- these are these are harsh words, and I don't like using it as a pussy feeling offensive. But in the end, you are kind of perceiving them as kind of subhuman mm-hmm. in a way, um, and it's that's the basis of all levels of supremacy. You inevitably, even if you have the best intentions and logically, you know, like this is a little human and I care so much about this little human, but you are still projecting expectations on them as if they were kind of a different species. And that's embedded in our learning histories. And I think that's one of the hardest things to combat that we're all going to have to just get comfortable with catching ourselves with, or there's only going to be so far we can ever progress. So I'm going to go so far as to say that even though we were focusing on E2 and E6 of the task We've gone list, a little off the 
the rails. I think we've, <laughs> I think we've hit all of the, uh, of the e-section ethics. <laughs> I really think we have, because we're talking about this in research. We're talking about this with supervisees and training and teaching this to other people, responsibility to clients and responsibility in, cl- in our practice. Like this, we're hitting on all these different things and it all starts with that foundation of our responsibility as a professional. Like we are responsible, not just for ourselves, but also for how we perceive things. And this is one of the reasons why I try very carefully when I'm, when I'm posting stuff to, to, um, and this is my approach and I love your approach because your approach is, I'm hoping that I'm preparing people and then giving them to you to, to give them the harder, <laughs> the harder things to consider. I do but, appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but my approach is I'm trying to get people to go down the path and start learning the skill of when they feel those emotions of upset or frustrated or angry when they learn something new, that they learn the skill of self-examination. And <clears throat> there is nothing more freaking, and I would substitute another word, but we're trying to keep this adult content out. There's nothing more freaking behavior analytic than self-management skills. That is behavior analysis to a T and we need to use those for ourselves. And this is a self-management skill that is related to ACT, acceptance, commitment, therapy, or training, which is an RFT uh, based self-management and or therapeutic approach, which RFT relational frame theory is behavior analysis, continuing to do what we're supposed to do, which is study, research, and expand our knowledge, right? Right? Science. Science. Wow. (laughs) Beautiful thing. (laughs) It's it's continuing the process. So, um, and so this is that, that process of self-examination because our internal events, the things that we're experiencing are behaviors and you're responding to your environment. So your, your values are being challenged your values and what your perception specifically of your values are, am I causing harm? But I'm a caregiver. I'm a person who does good. I'm a person who cares about other people. So I can't, I can't be causing harm. Well, yeah, you can, you can do it unintentionally. Anybody can do it unintentionally. Absolutely. Like, like because of science, we now know that crapping in a stream is going to poison people, right? That's a, science. That's a, science. Congratulations. <laughs> now we now we have regulations and rules relating to how we dispose of feces, people. Yes. So how about we get our poop in a group right here? <laughs> There's yeah. another blog post in there. <laughs> right there. Please use it. <laughs> but let's 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 get our poop in a group. Let's pack it all in and let's figure out what this feces is that is that we're unintentionally spreading everywhere and, and put it to where it needs to be, which where it needs to be is that self-examination that that process of being able to look at the way we're approaching things and how we can improve, how we can do better. And at the end of the day, yes, it's going to suck a little bit and it's going to hurt, but I've come to the conclusion that if you can engage somebody at their values, then that's going to overcome a lot of the environmental issues because usually what's happening with behavior analysis analysts who are being challenged is that they're feeling like they're feeling like they're being attacked. And that's that stimulus classes is aversive, possibly punishing aversive private events going on that they're going to want to then engage in escape and avoidance behavior. Mm -hmm. 
And so we need to learn how to examine those aversive private, private events under the view of our values so that we can understand. So, um, um, here's, here's a, here's a thought that occurred to me and I shared it with one of my best friends who is not a behavior analyst. He's trained as an anthropologist, but I'm training him as a behavior analyst. It's really great. Oh, uh, my spouse <laughs> is an anthropologist. There's so much overlap. We have the nerdiest conversations. Oh yes. So, um, <laughs> Until, so this is what I, what I wrote down. Until a human engages in their values, they only respond with reflex to operants. Hmm. Right? Change will only be initiated through external environments, environmental stimuli. We, we need, so like, and that's, that's what we do. We, we multi, uh, sorry, we manipulate the environmental stimulus with our clients and with the ultimate goal of getting them to have those self-management skills so that they can be fully independent so that they, it's not just responding to their external environment. It's also responding to their internal environment. So the follow-up to thought to that was free will does not exist when engaging in environment, um, environmental the words, environmental <laughs> operations and reflexes, but when humans engage their problem solving and relational making selves, this can, um, this is when free will activates. Free will is intrinsically linked to values and more specifically values driven action. That is very interesting. I remember having long conversations about free will in grad school. My grad classes were very discussion based. Uh, That's wonderful. I wish I'd had that. <laughs> this is definitely helpful. Um, definitely helpful. <laughs> see, don't hate me, Professor. I won't drop his name in case he's very embarrassed by me right now. Okay. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, we had lots of conversations about that. But that that's a very interesting take that, again, came from anthropology, not our field. So not necessarily something that we are thinking about. Th those private events... We ignore other people and we seems like we ignore our own as well. Mm -hmm. And that that I think is going to be a really big gateway to being able to listen to some of these criticisms is to be able to go, whoa, I'm feeling very angry and defensive right now. Why is that? So now we get to go into the second stated objective because we talked about <laughs> us as a professional. Uh, <laughs> yes, stated objective. Yes, very, <laughs> very, very. Yes, we're back on track. Okay. <laughs> so responsibility and public statements. Mm -hmm. That is a complicated one. Uh -huh. <laughs> and that's something I found. I was looking through these tasks lists and going, these are remarkably poorly defined for coming from the BACB. So I, I messaged you before and I was like, am I missing something here? I'm just finding a list. There uh -huh. are things that like, I just want to make sure that I fully understand this. Um, well, and my understanding is the BACB is releasing, well, not my understanding because I've been listening to them. They've been releasing little podcasts on specifically different things. And of late, the they've been releasing ones on the ethics um, aspect of things. And um, I, I love that we have an ethical code. Um, it's very good. And I love that the ethical code has been updated. Yes. That is also wonderful, mm -hmm. especially since it allows for us to be a little bit more flexible when it comes to cultural things. Don't get me started on the cultural flexibility component of it, because before refusing any sort of gift 
was basically being culturally insensitive because there's a lot of cultures out there where offering something to eat or drink is a very important aspect mm -hmm. of building a relationship with somebody and us saying no to somebody in that culture is effectively spitting on their cultural heritage. There, there is a wider <laughs> range of cons to that, I would say, than pros. I've also yeah. always wondered whose objectivity is really going to be that disrupted by a cup of tea. Yes. Um, but yes, at those, I think many of us have seen those conversations happening. But, I'll try not to take us down that <laughs> rabbit hole. <laughs> That's a fun Being one. Being married to an anthropologist, again, <laughs> lots of conversations there. <laughs> but but the, the point being with the, uh, me mentioning that is that's our ethical code, but that isn't the end-all be-all. That's the starting point. That's another flaw I feel like that comes up in, again, trying to engage with especially accusations that our field is inherently abusive. We are very proud of our ethical code. Mm -hmm. uh, that was one of my biggest things when I was kind of on the other side of this. I'm not afraid to admit. Uh, well, look at our ethical code. Look, it's a textbook. Look at our big yeah. ethical code. It, it's now I'm going to be looking at tearing apart parts of it. We should always be looking at our stuff critically because, no, it's not perfect. If it was perfect, we wouldn't have so many additions. Um, that was something else that I, I guess is embedded in my learning history because it was part of my my education is everybody talks about the big white Cooper book and how great it is. I was not presented with the Cooper book as the be all end all. Mm -hmm. I was presented with the Cooper book as let's tear this apart. And I think that was a really great foundation in my education because I don't look at any of our resources as perfect. You know, we, we don't, I kind of had that kind of woven in there. I mean, I still definitely had flawed thinking and I'm sure I still do, oh, yeah. but I do have that learning history, being able to look at this and go, wait a minute, there's, there's some things missing here, or there's some problematic things in here. And again, science, it should be living and growing and taking on new information. So there's an act exercise that I've come up with uh, metaphor act metaphor, which um, B.S. Skinner himself said metaphor is, is one of the most human behaviors out there. Uh, not exact quote. I think that's a, that's a rough, reference um but in act there the metaphor is a very beneficial way of teaching and learning and one of my favorite concepts in act is something called self as context and to understand self as context you need to understand its polar opposite which is self as content self as content is i am it's the thing i am the thing that i am and I am nothing other than this thing so um i'll use this an exam as an example i am smart Right. If mm -hmm. if the story that you tell yourself is I am start smart, then you're only going to move towards behaviors that reinforce the outward perception of you being smart. And there's actually some fantastic research outside of behavior analysis that demonstrates. Uh, and I think there might even be some behavior analytic research on this that demonstrates that when we praise a child for their intelligence. That they become more rigid. That is and interesting. And that ultimately it makes, it decreases their intellectual quotient, their, their intelligence, their willingness to try new things. But the research shows that if we praise them based off of discrete observable behaviors, and specifically we observe flexibility, 
trying, continuing, sticking to it, things like that, that not only is their flexibility increased, but also their capability of working through things, which ultimately leads to them being more intelligent. Their uh, IQ actually can go up when, when doing that. So that's, that's one of my pet peeves. Please make sure that you're teaching your RBTs and BCABAs and yourself to praise based off of, uh, off of observable behaviors, not based off of, Oh, you're so smart because that leads to, can lead to some bad effects, but I'm going to be on the lookout for that. Yeah. That is interesting, <laughs> but it's funny. It's something I feel like I've done naturally because I've worked with learners who are so terrified of being wrong that they stop trying. Mm -hmm. And I've had more than one learner where I've had to literally train the staff to go, I don't care if they're right or wrong. You need to make a big deal out of just responding. Like I'm not saying don't correct them because we just need to learn the skill. But I've had more than one where it's like, whoa, you raised your hand. You gave an answer. That's amazing. It's actually this, but (laughs) you know, and just really pump them up for that because yeah, they get stuck in that. Like, I don't know the answer. So I'm not gonna, I'm not even going to try. And then their programs get very stuck. Yeah. And that's self as content right there. And so it's opposite of self as context and self as context is I'm operating in the environment. I'm a part of the environment. I am not the thing. So when people ask me, like when I get an opportunity to actually use my language more precisely, because I don't do this everywhere I go, but like when I introduce myself to, to the mindful behavior group, I introduce myself. I'm one of the admins on there. I said, hi, I'm Brian. I experience autism. Oh, I'm I a like human. The, the only thing I am very clearly out of all that is I am a human and the rest of it I experience. Um, same thing goes for uh, my non-binary characteristics. Uh, people ask me what my pronouns are and I'm like, just use whatever you want. I don't care because my pronoun is me, my okay. true pronoun. Like that's who I am. I'm me. I will always be me. But it's really awkward when you say, when me wants me things, me is like, it's, it's, it's a super awkward. So I'm just like, whatever. I don't, I don't care about the pronouns. Like it, the, <laughs> the point is, is that my gender is me. I am always me and I will like things and whether they're perceived as masculine or feminine or that sort of thing, I'm still me and I will always be me. So at the end of the day, the the point of self is, is context is seeing yourself in your context and this creates flexibility. And so the, the metaphor I created is imagine that you are a barrel and inside your barrel are apples and these apples are ideas right? And your ideas are present inside you, the barrel, the container. And if one of those apples starts going bad, it's going to release these gases that are going to result in um, creating a chain reaction of causing all the other apples to start rotting. Um, Nobody wants to release gases either. That's a problem. Exactly. Well, you know, except for Shrek, better out than in, they always say. That's true. That's true. Uh, (laughs) So you, to prevent the, uh, the rotting process from occurring to all the apples, you want to remove the apple that is starting to rot and you want to remove it, even if it's just a soft spot that's popping up, right? Even if it's a little bit of the apple that's going bad. 
So the same thing goes for I, I for our ideas. Instead of saying I am my ideas, saying I am experiencing these ideas. Ooh, I examine myself and I see that one of these ideas is not quite right. Maybe it's got a little little soft spot, or maybe it's starting to mold just a bit. I'm going to reach in there, pluck it out, and replace it with a better apple, one that's not rotting. So that way, the rest of my ideas are not corrupted. And if we can see ourselves from that perspective, instead of it being, Ooh, I have to defend myself. I have to protect this thing. That is me. If we start looking at it as Ooh, values, these are our values. This is, this is what I value. I value caring and, and making a difference in people's lives. Well, if it turns out that I was doing something wrong, I'm not going to look at the person that I was accidentally hurting and say, you didn't feel that you're not allowed to feel that way. I'm going to, like, if I'm playing with a little kid and we're playing and we're tickling and he goes, ow, and I go, oh, and I withdraw, I pull back and I say, did I hurt you? And then if the little kid says, no, no, I'm just playing, then I go, well, if you use the word ow, that's going to tell me that it hurts. So I'm going to stop. And so one, I'm teaching them the concept of consent. Like if they say no or something like that, I'm making sure that I'm very clearly unscrewing up our culture <laughs> in yes. that regard. And I teach parents that as well. It's like, mm-hmm. no means no, we respect that. Right. Anytime but, a kid <laughs> says, says no, whatever is happening stops. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so, <laughs> so huge on that. So, so there's that side of it. But the other side is what if I actually did cause harm? Like what if I was tickling and I, and I got a spot that was maybe soft or bruised or something like that. Mm -hmm. Maybe they tripped and fell and I didn't know about this. Like I couldn't know. So my response is not to say, you didn't get hurt. That doesn't hurt. I'm just going to do it more. Right. But people do that, which is weird, but people do that. And I think it has a lot to do with self as context versus self as content. And then looking at it, the contingencies we make for ourselves, because when you, I I heard you mention that metaphor before, and my first thought was across the fields, you always have those scientists who have based their entire careers off of an idea. Mm -hmm. Well, now they're stuck there. That's the hill they have to die on because if they are proven wrong, they lose their careers. And some of them really will. I mean, some of them We'll, we'll lose funding, we'll lose potentially like professor positions. So they kind of have to die on that hill. But then they're left defending utterly absurd ideas because they, the contingencies around them are set up to reinforce that and punish change. It's and especially I feel like in, not to be ageist, but older generations, being mm-hmm. wrong is like the worst thing in the world. And it doesn't matter how much you present them with evidence to the contrary i guess being wrong has been severely punished in their lives they're going to do everything they can to deny that wrongness yeah and it creates i feel like some of that closing off we're seeing yeah there's definitely a split happening in our field i think most people are aware of that at this point so you kind of have people who have staked their careers on the idea of this is what aba is and you shun the (laughs) non-believers But if we can all kind of adopt that, replace those contingencies to go, no, it's okay. Yes, you were wrong. So was I. Let's move on and not fire people because they were wrong about something. And then continue zooming out to understand that when we are working with clients of like, like, like the rigidity we talked about of mm-hmm. it's okay that, you, that we're all learning. We're all here to learn. You made an error. That's okay. And 
you can, how behavior analysis can actually change the world. Yeah. Well, and, and going back to the core of it, because we're, again, this is another epistemological issue, right? Mm -hmm. We're science. So science responds to new information and toss, hopefully, well, (laughs) science responds, but the individual may not. Yes. Excellent. Yes. So um, I actually posted on Bearded Behaviorist a while back. Um, I think it was May 4th. Um, I posted a, a quote from um, Per Karsten, who is the director of the Lund University of Historical Museums, where in an article that was published, his theory on where a mummified fetus that was found in a uh, in in the burial casket of a very prominent figure in the history of that country, which I'm not going to say the country's name, Scandinavian country. I'm going to mess it up. Um, but this individual who heavily influenced their culture and has a lot of prestige and 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 there's a lot of love for him even now like 400 years later when he died he was buried in such a way that his body was perfectly preserved unintentionally um and so even now he's even more revered because his body is providing all this amazing information for scientists and and uh as our technology continues improving we're able to like discover all this stuff about him. And so this, this individual theorized that um, the fetus was a household member who had had a miscarriage or even abortion who was hiding the fetus, uh, like, you know, household staff. And yeah. he was proven wrong. Uh, and how he was proven wrong was that they were able to do genetic analysis because uh forensic genetic analysis has gotten to the point that we can now do some really good, accurate analysis of mummified remains. And this fetus was a grandchild. Oh. And so what, and, and this was, um, so when the, they hypothesized that when the fetus was buried with him, it was out of, to honor him and to honor the child that had, miscarried i'll be googling that later Uh, i i I will have to find the article and share it with you but this is the exact quote um i i I put a little uh, brackets in there to fill in the blank because otherwise it wouldn't work but so this is the bracket portion the results of the research bracket out are absolutely beautiful in every way beautiful because i was wrong i really love when science uh comes into play like that you have one theory and a new and new analysis proves that you are wrong and you have to think in another way. It's true. Like this is a guy who's a head of a university historical museum. That's awesome. Well, that's probably why, because he does good science. It sounds like he's a great (laughs) scientist and no, he's not a behavior analyst, but at the same time, like, kind of is he studies the permanent products of behavior so yeah, there you yeah. go <laughs> True. he just has to then guess what the behavior was yeah exactly <laughs> and but but the idea being that we need to have that attitude and when we make public statements our public statements need to reflect our growth our change over time and a part of that process is that self-examination that self-management um, behavior analyst analyze thyself 
the issue that comes up with public statements, which is why I'm on here as an opossum and not a person, Uh is our culture has certain contingencies set up. um, And it's definitely a change that's becoming more prevalent in their field, which is that of capitalism and huge corporations that I feel like are constantly trying to create a middle ground where there simply isn't one. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of how I read that particular one of like our responsibility, you have public statements. And maybe this is, again, just my learning history and my experience recently and my own private events of hissing and putting things on the Internet that I'm angry about of you're kind of telling us to support that, <laughs> you know, and be uh-huh. careful, be careful what we say. We don't want to be controversial. Um, but that really slows down change. And at some point you do have a right and wrong side of history. And it, it, I thought that that one was particularly difficult because it, I feel like it's putting you a little bit in a rock and a hard place of, do we want to create positive change in the field or do we want to support the, the business side and not make waves and try to make it look like we support all sides, despite the fact that that's completely impossible. Yes. Uh, that that is a fun maze of contingencies mm-hmm. to navigate. Um, referring back to Todd Ward's um, podcast, and I know it's easy to say, and it's not easy. I know it's not easy. I, I left education because of this issue. I I have it, it is very hard to make these shifts because boy, did I want to stay, but I needed to make that shift for me. Sometimes the best way to show that you're going to not let your ethics be shifted is by leaving, by walking away, by saying, I'm not going to participate in this. Um, that's not the only way. There's other ways too. Um Another way is challenge, like trying to implement organizational change. That's where OBM comes in. That's where self-management skills come in, that sort of thing. Um, and I remember, I, I think it might've been Winston Hurt Churchill who, uh, and if I misquote this, I am so sorry, but he said um, something along the lines of diplomacy is the art of telling to somebody to go to hell in such a way that they want to go. I am familiar with that quote. It's a pretty okay. good one. So some of us uh, aren't very good at that, though. <laughs> some of us aren't very good at that. Some but, of us just say go to hell and then realize we, what we just said. <laughs> yeah, but but kind of the flip side of that is, is that that's one view of diplomacy. Another view of diplomacy is I believe it's the art of trying to weigh the different contingencies that people are being influenced by and their values and then helping them see that there's a better way. True. And all of those, I would agree, are good ways to go, but it's also something you got to recognize privilege in, Uh where, I mean, this is not exactly known for being the highest paying of fields, where some people, you you are weighing the risk of, do I protect my ethics or do I protect my ability to eat? Yes. And I have been in those situations more times than I would really like. Um, as much as I would like to say, screw you, I'm out. Yeah. There's, and I have been prepared 
to do that, but also accept a whole lot of consequences up to and including losing my house in the process, yes. which which definitely it, I would argue is a pretty punishing contingency that right. is in place for a lot of people. So then what do you do? Well, you find ways of coping with it. Either you, you know, break the rules quietly or you do some mental gymnastics with your vulnerable behavior and find ways to accept things. Behavior is complex. Yes, but it's behavior is definitely complex. food for thought. But a big part of that also is, and, and please keep in mind, I'm not, um, I'm, this is discussion. This is not being critical of, of your approach or other people's approach. This is, this oh, is yeah. more of being analytic. So um, I like that analytics. Good. Yes. <laughs> a, a big part of this is that self-management component of, okay, how am I contributing to this culture and how can I change the culture? What are the ways that I can do it? Sometimes it starts tiny, small. Sometimes it starts pretty big. I didn't intend to be an influencer when I started Bearded Behaviorist. I intended it to be a joke. That's pretty funny. That, that, that was also <laughs> making it fun for me to study. And it took me a year to be able to come to terms with the fact that people actually were listening to what I had to say. And <laughs> so there's that. But the flip side of that is, is that like, where can you take committed action towards your values? Going back to those ACT concepts. And if you don't know ACT, please read up on it. It's so wonderful and it's going to help you so much. Um, uh, start with uh, either the happiness trap or a liberated mind. Uh, Dr. Russ Harris writes The Happiness Trap, A Liberated Mind is written by Stephen C. Hayes, the principal researcher behind ACT and relational frame theory. Um, and I highly recommend The Liberated Mind because it's also available on audio. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> I'm a I like audio. audio. <laughs> Me too. Same. <laughs> I wish that Happiness Trap was on audio. I've, I've, I've read it, but I, I, I would love to reread it through audio because I would comprehend more. But the point being, like, find identify your values and take committed action towards them. If it's small, if it's breaking those, those unethical corporate rules a little bit here and there and trying to figure out how to undermine it. Great. Do that. Just don't break the law. Mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> um, and, and, and don't bend our ethics code, like try to be rigid on the line. Um, but then try to push towards more ethical behavior because our ethics code, again, it's a foundation. It's, it's not the whole thing, in my opinion. In my opinion, we need to use that as our backbone, but be more ethical. And that includes concepts of con consent and things like that. Um, it includes understanding cultural things. Like, for example, um, I read some articles about teaching autistic children how to lie. And the the um, socially significant argument was that white lies are an important part of our culture and that being able to tell a white lie benefits relationships for the individual. So they specifically targeted, uh, targeted it around receiving gifts that are non-preferred or less preferred. And, <laughs> I literally just got done working on this with a learner. <laughs> and, and, and like being able to uh, convincingly say, thanks. I appreciate the gift. Yep. Right. And, 
And my response as I'm reading this is horror because I'm like, you're targeting the wrong behavior. Yeah. The behavior you should be targeting is how to thank the person for being thoughtful because mm-hmm. a gift is a gift is something that's thoughtful, even if you don't like it. And then how, yes. if, if the person's like, do you like it? Being able to kindly tell them, well, I don't personally like it, but I appreciate your thought. And we were more concerned with um, this particular individual, what they did with the gifts that they didn't like. There was like, a little bit of an issue there. I will avoid identifying information, but just trust me, it was worth intervening on. <laughs> yeah, if, if they're like throwing the gift at somebody, that's that's socially significant. If they're yeah. smashing it or, like, or they start SIVing or th- things like that's definitely something that's worth targeting. But like teaching yes. how to lie, that's a problem because mm-hmm. that's, culturally dominating somebody who belongs to a culture, the autistic culture where lying, especially white lies are, is, is really frowned upon. And I'm not saying autistics don't lie. I can lie. Mm -hmm. Like it, like we all lie because it, it, depending on the contingency that's in play, like if there's, if there's a high chance of punishment or there's a high chance of, um, well, punishment and loss of reinforcement, which is a negative punisher. Yeah. Anyways, mm-hmm. if there's a high chance of punishment, then then we're going to lie if we know about that contingency. So it happens. But I feel like the majority of autistics highly value honesty and especially honesty in our interactions. So it's l- discrimination training on learning how to identify that the other person is trying to be thoughtful so it's giving that other person the benefit of the perspective doubt. Perspective taking, Im- yeah. Importance, it's perspective mm-hmm. taking, important skill. So it's it's learning how to identify that. And then it's also learning how to express gratitude for the thought, even if the thing itself is non-preferred. I'm so glad you brought up the cultural context there. I don't think people realize mm-hmm. actually how widespread that is. I am not autistic. I'm not neurotypical either, but I have never liked white lies. I've always really valued direct honesty. I mean, I don't think I could handle being roasted, but if I say, how does this look on me? And it looks like crap. I would really like you to tell me it looks like crap. I don't want to hear, oh, it's good. As a writer, that was something that used to drive me crazy is I would give someone a story I wrote or something. I also do fiction and people would go, oh, it was good. Like, no, it wasn't. I'm 12. There's no way it was good. Like, tell me something. And nobody ever would. And I think it was even worse because I was a child. No one wants to hurt a child's feelings, but I legit wanted those things to be torn apart. Yeah. And it, it so that's, that's one example of, of uh, how we need to be a little bit better with our ethics is that, yeah, sure. It's, it seems socially significant to you, but are you looking at that person's values? Are you looking at their community? Are you looking at them as a person? And so like our responsibility communities outside of your own. Exactly. And, and, and so your, our responsibility is to try to respect those, honor those, um, and then also our responsibility, I think, in public statements is to try to push towards that, that positive change um, 
in, in a, the most effective way possible. Um, I feel like your approach is very necessary and I'm glad that you're, uh, especially considering the circumstances you've mentioned, I'm glad that you're uh, protecting your identity so that way you, you don't get those negative contingencies coming in uh, and hurting you. Um, but the flip side is for all of us who have the ability to be vocal, because I work for a company that is highly ethical and is highly self-examining, and I have seen it happen in play, I've, uh, where I've, I've challenged and, and the response was, oh, okay, cool, we can do better. And I've been challenged and I go, oh, okay, I can do better, right? That's like, awesome. So when, when, when that happens, that's fantastic. So we need to all speak up. Um, I'm going to bring up um, the work of, and I've mentioned him before, and I will mention him again because I absolutely love Jonathan Haidt's work. Um, Dr. Jonathan Haidt and Moral Foundations Theory, which is a, I believe it's social psychology. Um, it's, a, it's a theory about, uh, well, basically values. And Dr. Haidt in his work has identified six moral foundations if you want a good introductory to introduction to this, I highly recommend The Righteous Mind, um, which is a fantastic book. And also if you go to, I think, moralfoundations.org, um, it'll give you a really good introduction as well. But the idea is that Dr. Haight has identified six seemingly universal moral foundations that Ooh. people live to. And I say seemingly because I'm a good scientist. <laughs> my there, first thought was I'm going to give that to my anthropologist spouse and see how universal these are. <laughs> and, and, well, and here's a cool thing about it is Dr. Haight has been trying very carefully to make sure uh, to expand his research outside of just North America and Europe. So that's part that's of the important. reason why it's seemingly is, is yeah. the point. He's trying to make sure that we are truly trying to see if this is universal or not. Um, very but, cool. but there's a practical application to this. And that practical application is if you can identify somebody else's moral taste buds, that's the terminology Dr. Hate uses. I like uh, it. It's pronounced, by the way, it's pronounced hate, but it's spelled Hyatt, H-A-I-D-T. Uh, um, that's how he pronounces it. So I'm pronouncing it the way he pronounces it. But um, Always a good practice. Yes, exactly. You know, you say it the way that people prefer. And if you mess up, fix it. That's easy. Mm -hmm. Right. And move on. <laughs> move on. Yes, we're done. We're done. So um so Dr. Haight, uh, he, he calls them moral taste buds. And if you can identify the moral taste bud or taste buds that somebody is speaking to, and you can start speaking to them in their moral taste bud language, then you're bypassing those cultural barriers of defensiveness and getting to the heart of the disagreement, getting heart to, to the heart of the issue. And I feel like RFT research um, has some beautiful Venn diagram overlap going on here. Um, and I, I have a suspicion that Dr. Haight and Dr. Hayes might be connected in some way, maybe not directly. Um, but I know that uh, Dr. Um, David Sloan Wilson, who co-authored ProSocial, um, has mentioned Dr. Haight's research. So... Maybe, maybe they know each I mean, other. These, maybe these communities are relatively small, especially yeah. with social media. Uh, that creates a very good argument, though, for 
we need more education, potentially mm-hmm. in things we might not expect. Because um, depending on where you live, where you've grown up and your, your own learning history, you may not have the skills to really find some of that. Uh, and this is something I definitely noticed. I've lived in several different states. Mm-hmm. And um, Atlanta, for instance, is an incredibly diverse place. And also um, five of the highest per capita populations LGBTQ community are cities in Atlanta. And then I moved to the Midwest and it's, it's very, I'm not trying to insult anybody, but it's far more segregated out here mm-hmm. than it is in Atlanta. And the awareness, even people who, you know, are not necessarily like actively prejudiced, but they just don't have the experience with other cultures to really be able to think past a certain point about it. And really the only way I could think to solve that is by getting that education, like Mm -hmm. while you're in grad school to be a behavior analyst or having these difficult conversations. And that is one, while social media has definitely caused a variety of ills in our society, it does have its benefits of being able to access large groups of very different people from very different learning histories. Mm-hmm. And I fit that, I mean, past, if you are in one of these insulated areas or just more segregated areas, that's kind of the only way you're going to be able to do that is by being able to have these conversations. And again, going back to responsibilities of field and also public statements, having to allow these, these conversations to happen, um, in a way that's productive, keeping them productive and not shutting them down or punishing them. Uh, and that can go to company levels too. There's, you know, again, that fear of trying to be in the middle ground, whether or not there really is one can result in a lot of censorship, but then there's, are you fulfilling your responsibility to a field, to the field in that case by censoring those conversations and not allowing those ideas to come out? Um, especially like if you just strongly disagree with them. Well, and if whoever, if, if somebody here is listening and, and has the ear of somebody who's in, in organizational leadership or is an organizational leader, um, I highly, I can't, I can't recommend this book enough because it's a wonderful book. I, it's called Radical Inclusion, What the Post-9-11 World Should Have Taught Us About Leadership. It's by Martin Dempsey, the former chief, uh, chairman for the chief, sorry, former chairman for the Joint Chiefs of Staff, okay, and Ori Braffman, a professor at UC Berkeley. Every um, list is growing. It, yes, uh, uh, that's unfortunately a problem <laughs> that I have. I continue, I continue adding to people's reading lists, and then I get my reading list added to, too. And uh, I also have a blog. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a blog, but this is also available on audio. Ta-da! Yay, mine is not. Sorry. <laughs> well, I'm sure you could figure out a way with accessibility software to be able to get get it to be read to you. So that's true. Yeah. That's true. Um, but long and short of it is, I highly recommend this book because this actually addresses some of those issues. Um, it is an OBM book that's not an OBM book. I like that. <laughs> that makes it accessible to me. Yes. Things like business that scared me. That makes me mm, go hide in the trash cans. Well, and um, just to give you a little bit of a background, like obviously Martin Dempsey is, uh, his credentials are a little bit better understood 
when you when when I mentioned that because like he was a five star general, so yep. <laughs> like that's that's pretty impressive. He might have some experience. Um, but Ori Braffman was the uh, actually the person who started McVegan. I'm not familiar. Oh well, Google it. It's fun. The I McVegan will. McVegan movement is a wonderful thing, uh, and I am not vegan and I'm not vegetarian, but. Um, I absolutely love the intent behind those communities and the McVegan approach, especially as it's being broken down in this book is a fantastic perspective. That, Definitely that, good. Check that out. Yes. It's, it's a wonderful thing. And it's the idea is how can we address these problems? Well, like the old responses aren't working like they, okay, maybe they're working here and there temporarily, but we're talking about lasting change here. We're talking about truly making a difference. And at the end of the day, the way things are moving, and I think this is a, a positive move, um, but the way things are moving is that there's going to be change that has to take place, period. And it's going to be either forced on us through lawmakers, or it's going to have to be done by us. And I prefer by us. Yes. And frankly, um, by us, that, that, that preference for making the change by us there's a big foundation in the history of our organization uh, in behavior analysts for this change, because I believe in the ethics course, I'm going to mangle this. It was uh, some situation in Florida um, where there was somebody who claimed to be a behavior analyst who was creating all sorts of awful situations, including there was sexual assault of people in, um, oh, come on in the facility that they were being served, uh, individuals in the facility were being pitted against each other in fights, things like that. Oh, and this person uh, went to a workshop and then claimed that he was a behavior analyst. I think this was in the seventies or eighties. Yep. Um, again, memory is not the best, but long as short I know it, what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> so we behavior analysts got together and we said, Hey, this is a problem. We need to fix it. Right. And the culmination of that was the organization of the BACB. Yep. So we have a, a history of behavior of doing this. So bravo, let's keep going. Right. Let's, let's, that's what's been interested. It's almost like we feel like, well, we did it. We're done. But, and it's, yeah. Like why, <laughs> why is it done? I have, yeah. It's and, funny. It's a, it's a mindset I simultaneously don't understand, but I did also kind of have uh -huh. for a while there. And it's, and other fields have done this. This is a conversation I actually was having with my spouse just about the pushback that we get in trying to make ABA better. Um, and then you hear the argument of, well, it's not just ABA. And it's true. It's not. It's mm -hmm. not just ABA. But a lot of the fields, <laughs> they have addressed these issues. They have acknowledged them and they have worked to improve them. I mean, anthropologists literally used to have human zoos. Like that's, that's pretty bad. I would argue that that is on level with with the level of bad that's in our history as well. Mm -hmm. But they have grown farther past that, I feel like, than we have from our history. And they have almost like this fear of going back to that to the point that it continues to expand. Whereas we possibly, again, because of that history of constantly having to defend ourselves and being right against people who genuinely may not understand mm -hmm. what we do, but we've, we've kind of shut it off. Well, we don't do that anymore. We're done. We fixed it. But there's we did not solve every single problem. And yeah. ableism has been very slow 
to make progress. So that's definitely one of the areas like we talked about earlier, we, we've made a lot of progress in terms of other communities. We still have ways to go with all of them, but I feel like ableism is probably trailing behind that one or the rest of them. And I would go so far as to argue that perhaps behavior analysis is a little bit ahead of the curve compared to most of education. That's fair. Yeah. Because as a, <laughs> as a seven year special ed teacher, I, I, I feel like education definitely has some, some big issues that need to be addressed. Not there's to say that some... they haven't been addressing some of their issues, but it, there's some horrifying stories that come out of schools. So. Yes. There's yes. still, uh, but, yes. but regardless, this isn't a, this isn't the comparison Olympics. This is a, yes. Hey, guess what? We need to improve. And like my attitude is I am responsible, but going back to what I said before, I am responsible because I am a member of this community. Yes, yes I am an autistic individual who is uh, non-binary. So I'm uh, in, in some respects there, but that doesn't mean I'm authority. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean, no, I'm not your token. Screw you if you think that I'm your token. Good for you. Um, because I'm not, and I refuse to be. What I am is I'm a person who has privilege and authority because I am very privileged for having multiple advanced degrees. I'm very privileged for being able to have due to a combination of luck and learning and environmental factors and definitely benefited from uh, the way that I present externally, which is white male, right? I, I, I have a lot of advantages there and that doesn't, that doesn't disable the struggle that I went through. That doesn't undermine it. It just says, here's the deal, folks. I have privilege. I have power. I have authority. And I need to use it right. Because the person that I'm serving, I have control over their life. Mm-hmm. And that I power can, dynamic, whether you want it or not. Whether I there. want it or not, it's there. And so I have to accept that I have that power and that privilege. And if I don't accept that, then I'm more prone to do harmful things. And even though I accept it, I can still do harmful things. Even though I have the best of intentions, I'm always striving to improve. And you know what? Yes, it's a little bit exhausting. Oh yeah. But you know what's more exhausting? Living in a world where I'm constantly denying reality. That, that, that always does seem exhausting to me. I see people who do it though. And that just seems like so much work yeah which is where i think where a lot of i mean that's where i had to cave i definitely was all how dare you criticize aba and then somebody asked a question somewhere and it was so benign but it was like whoa you're actually doing that okay i can't deny that well maybe there's something to this chris and some of this this is not just old aba this is still happening yeah and, and like, if I'm sure if somebody were to do some sort of Google search thing on me and pulled up my internet history, there was a time when I was defending things that now I don't. There Same. was a time when I was saying things that now I'm like, nope, that's not, I don't <laughs> believe that anymore. That's total BS, right? Another drawback of social media is it records our histories. But then there's that meme that went around that went, when you see a post from yourself from five years ago and just go, oh, honey, no. Yeah. You know, we're, we're allowed to grow. I don't, I, I don't delete that stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, anybody's more than welcome to dig through my history and pull up something. And so, cause I'm more than happy to go. Yeah, you're, I did. I did think that way. Yeah. Um, I was wrong and I am sorry. I, I used to be incredibly homophobic and racist and now I'm 
not homophobic and trying to address my racism. <laughs> That's a whole other conversation. That is a big old whole other conversation. <laughs> but the long and short of it is going back, are we selfless content or selfless context? Are we living, growing, expanding, changing beings? Or are we, are we the sum of our experiences? I argue that we're the sum of what we take from our experiences. I argue that um, we should all be inappropriate opossums and speak up. Yay. And, <laughs> you know, speak, speak to the level that's going to be appropriate for the environment. And for your environment, your blog is very appropriate because the, there's, there's a, a, a modicum of choice and a modicum of opportunity for people to be able to find you as opposed to you, you know, walking up and yelling at somebody in their face, which I, I know you wouldn't do. <laughs> it doesn't get, I tried. It didn't get me very well. They put a net around me and then they moved me to another place in the forest. And yeah. Yeah. But the good news is when you were in that other place in the forest, you ate all those ticks. So thank you. You're welcome. Vegetarian ticks, of course. Yeah. Yes. Uh, tofu those, ticks. Yes. Tofu ticks. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the long and short of it is we have to be those people. We have to, this is a part of our duty and responsibility as behavior analysts. Um, I have been told, and I'm sure you have too, uh, multiple things like, oh, you're just virtue signaling. Or the other, my other favorite one is, who are you to tell me this? And well, my, hi, nice to meet you. I'm here to tell you this is kind of yeah. my response to that. <laughs> well, and, and my response is, well, virtue signaling is pretending something is your values when it's not. And so this is my value. So therefore the very definition of virtue signaling does not apply here. So while I appreciate that you're feeling attacked, I would encourage you to engage your value of care and examine and see if maybe perhaps the reason you're feeling this way is because there's something that you need to work on. And if there isn't something you need to work on, congratulations. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so I much. I doubt that, but congratulations. But, but congratulations. <laughs> but uh, that goes to the next part of the response, which is who are you to tell me that? Because yes, I'm a young behavior analyst. Um, I am fairly new to the field by comparison to so many other people, mm -hmm. but is it not within our code of ethics to talk to each other and engage each other when we're being unethical and maybe perhaps challenging our unethical behavior? And perhaps mm -hmm. maybe that, that if you engage the paradigm of authority, that what you're doing is undermining our ethical drive to be able to do that? Potentially because you have a longer history, uh, uh, you being the other person criticizing you, uh -huh. be as somebody who has been in the field for over a decade, we have a long learning history. It's just like working with adults versus kids. What they, they both may have the same challenging behavior, but one may have a longer history of engaging in that behavior. So maybe it's a little bit more challenging to change, but maybe we, as the older people with shorter BCBA numbers mm -hmm. need to consider is we've got our own learning history that's lasted a while Then maybe we need to just recognize that pause and work on ourselves a little bit harder. I always like, I'm also, I also do martial arts. And one thing I really, really like about my organization is our overall philosophy is the belt is just holds your gi together. Um, black belts practice with white belts. Everybody practices with each other. And there is that recognition of this person's been doing it a while. 
but this person's new and may have newer knowledge. And I have seen white belts give feedback to black belts. I'm not saying every single one of them is gracious, but for the most part, there is that overall attitude of kind of checking your ego and going, oh, I never thought about it that like about like that. You've got that that newer information, that newer approach that maybe I never received because it didn't exist when I was at that lower rank. So that's one thing I really like about working with grad students and up and coming BCBAs is they are bringing new information to me. Sometimes they're bringing old information and then I can fix it. But (laughs) there's you've got to just check that ego. That's that's the biggest thing. And um, this happened to me this week, actually. Um, I had an RBT who I have cultivated. I'm tr- very much trying to cultivate this culture. I've cultivated a culture where I can be approachable and they can offer criticism to me. Not everybody's learned that. Some people have to go the roundabout route because it's aversive to confront people. And so I have mm-hmm. had, um, I've had supervisors come to me and ask me about a situation and me talking to them and telling them the situation and saying I, they are welcome to come talk to me if they have those concerns and that that supervisor's behavior is also the same, but, you know, acknowledging that that's part of human behavior, but this particular RBT came directly to me was very cautious and careful how this issue was addressed with me, but addressed the issue of something I had done wrong. That's awesome. That and my res- to come to you. <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful. I was, it, it, I was like, thank you so much. <laughs> and, and, and my response was, I initially, I wanted to defend and I, and I even started saying, well, this was happening. And then I was like, hold on a second. I caught myself and I was like, you're right. I need to be more attentive. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I, I will do, I will do better. And like, culture is a part of behavior, right? Sure. So (laughs) like it shapes it. So how can we shape culture? Your culture is shaped by your behavior and your behavior is shaped by your culture. How can you change that? If we have power and influence, even if we're the low BCBA on the totem pole, if if your company is that way, or you know what? If you're a student, uh, a grad student, a behavior analyst in training, a BCABA, a BCABA in training, an RBT, doesn't matter where you're at, you have the ability to shape your culture. And so our, our responsibility is to shape our culture. Um, it's not easy. It takes work. It takes effort. The reality of the matter is, is that we should have addressed these issues yesterday. We should have addressed these issues 20 years ago. We should address these issues when the very first voice came out and said, hey, this is harmful. Yes. But we we could should all over the world and the world will be covered in should and it would (laughs) badly. Mm -hmm. Right. Or we can talk about what is and what we need to do now. It's time to move forward. And it starts with each of us. And to the people who find being wrong, incredibly aversive. that RBT probably respects you so much because you admitted you were wrong and you respected their criticism. I hope so. (laughs) Knowing, (laughs) I don't know them, but I'm making an assumption based on my own learning history. It looks much better and I am much more willing to respect somebody who admits they're wrong 50 times. Like I'm not gonna think, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to think they're open to learning. They're a good scientist as opposed to digging your heels in and 
even if, even if you're not wrong, let's say whatever it is the hill you're dying on is the right one. If you're not willing to at least listen and engage with the conversation, you kind of just look like a big a-hole and you're not going to have the authority you crave so badly or the respect. And it's not a good look on our field. Whereas at least if we can listen, engage, show that we are hearing and understanding the other side and then respectfully present that other view, like even if we continue disagreeing, it's it's just going to make more progress. It's going to make for more productive conversations than just saying, you don't know what you're talking about. I have a degree in behavior, so nah, nah. And it, it just shuts down everything. It's just going to create this big war and... It's even worse when if other people in your field are agreeing with this, you know, taking that same approach of, I don't know what that is, but are you just shutting them down? Well, and to add to that, I would argue that instead of shutting down conversation, if you in, in get involved with the conversation, perhaps you can be the one that offers solutions. Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps your insights are the ones that are going to make the, the insights that are going to make all the difference. Um, perhaps your insights will lead to somebody else's insights being the one that makes all the difference. We get so stuck in this idea that we want to be special, unique, and, and, and we are like, we all have our unique combinations and stuff, but what about that collaboration aspect? Like we need to have individualism, but we also need to have community. 100%. We need to be a part of the community. Humans are a super organism as well as individual organisms. We need to cooperate. And if we don't cooperate, we're going to screw ourselves out of existence. Figuratively and shown. literally. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just. And all the levels of that, all of that, none of it's good. <laughs> so, so, if you've listened to this point, dear listener, and you've engaged to this point and you've w moved past any of those feelings of discomfort. If you are the one, one of those folks that is feeling that discomfort, thank you. Yes. Thank Except you for feeling it. <laughs> thank you for feeling it. Thank you for accepting it. Thank you for listening. Let's move forward because we need to make it so that it's none of ABA. Yes. It, it, it needs to be. And it needs to be that all of baby ABA, all of behavior analysis is trauma-informed, the baseline experience. It needs to be the exception, not as the Kennedy Ethics Journal points out, the dominant species. Because a journal focused on ethics. Yeah. Published that. So we gotta work on something, folks. And you know what? When we get to the point where that's the baseline experience, our work's not done because you never get to your values. Your values are something you're always traveling towards because we always have to self-check. And you that's don't want to get stuck. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. That's science. There you go. Sorry, yes. go ahead. You don't want to get no, stuck. It's okay. You don't want to get stuck in the, well, every field has bad practitioners. Yes, mm -hmm. that's true. But one, we're not every field. We're ABA. We can't do anything about the other fields. Mm -hmm. We can do things about ABA. Number two, those experiences aren't as common in those other fields. It's, it, it's still a, we want to get it to a point where when we hear about something harmful happening in our field, it is shocking and it is rare and worthy of making the news. It's not right now. 
that's that's just the reality of it is it is more common exactly so i feel like uh we have done a very good job of, <laughs> of, of, of exploring this. Do you have any other thoughts? Oh, inappropriate opossum. <laughs> Just while my blog will come off as harsh and it is definitely not PG 13 rated. So just a heads up, if you don't like language, there's some in there. Um, I do hear that discomfort. I was there. So I just kind of want to offer that. And thank you to bearded behaviorists for being able to soften that blow a little bit. Because it's easy to forget, like once you dive into it, you it, you do kind of forget how hard that is to hear. But just try to take a look at it, not just the same as self-promotion, but because I do feel like the information is important um, and let yourself get angry, but also let yourself think about why and engage with these conversations. I do have advice on there for doing that, but please don't shut it down because it makes you angry and defensive. We need to do better. I think the science of behavior has so much potential, but we were built on problems. So we need to knock those down. Let's, let's address the epistemological problems and let's go to the heart of the issue, which yes. is if we're a science of behavior, we should be analyzing our behavior as well as the behavior we're analyzing. We're a science. And, there you go. Yep. Science. Science. <laughs> science mitches <laughs> i, I want to have a friend named mitch so that way i can say science mitch <laughs> yes <laughs> i do have a friend named mitch oh cool I you will. can say that <laughs> i should send him that with no context <laughs> that'd be beautiful it'd also be oh, a little inappropriate a little bit a little bit but that's mm -hmm. okay a little bit inappropriate for inappropriate behavior that that works for me yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay folks so thank you so much for listening to us um please remember um, that OBEHAVE is an open source educational material, which means you can use all or part of it towards furthering and continuing of education. Um, just remember to cite your sources. Uh, please take the opportunity to visit Inappropriate Behavior, follow on Facebook, as well as um, reading the wonderful blog posts that the Inappropriate Possum shares. Um, Thank you for being a member of this community. Thank you for being a member of a community that wants to do better. And hope behave. Mm -hmm.